Welcome to Craftlit, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 537 As the Leaves Turn. This episode of Craftlit is brought to you by you. Thank you. Well, hello. How are you? I am well. I took a walk in the dark last night. It was lovely. I had been in the basement working all day long, and when I finally got a chance to leave the house, it smelled good. It felt good. It was cool. It was dry. It was lovely. And it made me really happy. Love this time of year. And what was I listening to while I was outside walking? Well, that'd be The Tenant of Wildfell Hall. Helen has turned that corner that we saw last week, where she recognizes that revenge, not going to do her any good, She has resigned herself to this reality, but she hasn't decided to wallow in it, I guess is a way to say it. And next week's chapter will prove that point even more thoroughly. But first, there is someone else she needs to talk to. And this week, she does. And it is is an interesting position that Anne Bronte put Helen into, I think, for this chapter, and also an important one. It is also a chapter where the few times you see our rapscallions, she has kind of (laughs) treated them two-dimensionally. They are, you know, rubbing their hands and chortling with glee at how nasty and horrible they can be, which is a little over the top. But I'll give her a pass because she's definitely not focusing on them this week, which I I appreciated. (laughs) We we all needed a break. So I'm not going to belabor the opening because there's more to talk about in the after. So here we go with chapter 38 of The Tenant of Wildfell Hall by Anne Bronte, read for you by Maya Daguerre. Chapter 38. The Injured Man. December 20th, 1826. The fifth anniversary of my wedding day, and I trust the last I shall spend under this roof. My resolution is formed, my plan concocted, and already partly put in execution. My conscience does not blame me, but while the purpose ripens, let me beguile a few of these long winter evenings in stating the case for my own satisfaction. A dreary amusement enough, but having the air of useful occupation and being pursued as a task, it will suit me better than a lighter one. In September, quiet Grastel was again alive with a party of ladies and gentlemen, so called, consisting of the same individuals as those invited the year before last, with the addition of two or three others, among whom were Mrs. Sargreave and her younger daughter. The gentleman and Lady Lowborough were invited for the pleasure and convenience of the host, 
The other ladies, I suppose, for the sake of appearances, and to keep me in check and make me discreet and civil in my demeanour. But the ladies stayed only three weeks. The gentlemen, with two exceptions, above two months, for their hospitable entertainer was loath to part with them and be left alone with his bright intellect, his stainless conscience and his loved and loving wife. On the day of Lady Lowborough's arrival, I followed her into her chamber and plainly told her that if I found reason to believe that she still continued her criminal connection with Mr Huntington, I should think it my absolute duty to inform her husband of the circumstance, or awaken his suspicions at least, however painful it might be, or however dreadful the consequences. She was startled at first by the declaration, so unexpected and so determinately yet calmly delivered, but rallying in a moment she coolly replied that if I saw anything at all reprehensible or suspicious in her conduct, she would freely give me leave to tell his lordship all about it. Willing to be satisfied with this, I left her, and certainly I saw nothing thenceforth particularly reprehensible or suspicious in her demeanour towards her host. But then I had the other guests to attend to, and I did not watch them narrowly, for to confess the truth I feared to see anything between them. I no longer regarded it as any concern of mine, and if it was my duty to enlighten Lord Lowborough, it was a painful duty, and I dreaded to be called to perform it. But my fears were brought to an end in a manner I had not anticipated. One evening, about a fortnight after the visitor's arrival, I had retired into the library to snatch a few minutes' respite from forced cheerfulness and wearisome discourse, for, after so long a period of seclusion, dreary indeed as I have often found it, I could not always bear to be doing violence to my feelings and goading my powers to talk and smile and listen and play the attentive hostess, or even the cheerful friend. I had just ensconced myself within the bow of the window and was looking out upon the west, where the darkling hills rose sharply defined against a clear amber light of evening that gradually blended and faded away into the pure pale blue of the upper sky, where one bright star was shining through, as if to promise, when that dying light is gone, the world will not be left in darkness. And they who trust in God, whose minds are unbeclouded by the mists of unbelief and sin, are never wholly comfortless. When I heard a hurried step approaching, and Lord Lobra entered, this room was still his favourite resort. He flung the door to with unusual violence and cast his hat aside regardless of where it fell. What could be the matter with him? His face was ghastly pale, his eyes were fixed upon the ground, his teeth clenched, his forehead glistening with the dews of agony. It was plain he knew his wrongs at last. Unconscious of my presence, he began to pace the room in a state of fearful agitation, violently wringing his hands and uttering low groans or incoherent ejaculations. I made a movement to let him know that he was not alone, but he was too preoccupied to notice it. Perhaps while his back was towards me I might cross the room and slip away unobserved. I rose to make the attempt, but then he perceived me. He started and stood still a moment, then wiped his steaming forehead and advancing towards me with a kind of unnatural composure, said in a deep, almost sepulchral tone, "'Mrs. Huntington, I must leave you tomorrow.' "'Tomorrow?' I repeated. I do not ask the cause. You know it then, and you can be so calm, said he, surveying me with profound astonishment, not unmingling with a kind of resentful bitterness as it appeared to me. I have so long been aware of, I paused in time and added, 
of my husband's character that nothing shocks me. But this, how long have you been aware of this? demanded he, laying his clenched hand on the table beside him and looking me keenly and fixedly in the face. I felt like a criminal. Not long, I answered. You knew it, cried he with bitter vehemence, and you did not tell me. You helped to deceive me. My lord, I did not help to deceive you. Then why did you not tell me? Because I knew it would be painful to you. I hoped she would return to her duty and then there would be no need to harrow your feelings with such... Oh God, how long has this been going on? How long has it been, Mrs Huntington? Tell me, I must know, he exclaimed with intense and fearful eagerness. Two years, I believe. Great heaven, and she's duped me all this time. He turned away with a suppressed groan of agony and paced the room again in a paroxysm of renewed agitation. My heart smote me, but I would try to console him, though I knew not how to attempt it. She is a wicked woman, I said. She has basely deceived and betrayed you. She is as little worthy of your regret as she was of your affection. Let her injure you no farther. Abstract yourself from her and stand alone. And you, madam, he said sternly, arresting his walk and turning it round upon me, you have injured me too by this ungenerous concealment. There was a sudden revulsion in my feelings. Something rose within me and urged me to resent this harsh return for my heartfelt sympathy and defend myself with answering severity. Happily, I did not yield to the impulse. I saw his anguish as, suddenly smiting his forehead, he turned abruptly to the window and, looking upward at the placid sky, murmured passionately, "'Oh, God, that I might die!' and felt that to add one drop of bitterness to that already overflowing cup would be ungenerous indeed. And yet I fear there was more coldness than gentleness in the quiet tone of my reply. I might offer many excuses that some would admit to be valid, but I will not attempt to enumerate them. I know them, he said hastily. You would say that it was no business of yours, that I ought to have taken care of myself, that if my own blindness has led me into this pit of hell, I have no right to blame another for giving me credit for a larger amount of sagacity than I possessed. I confess I was wrong, continued I, without regarding this bitter interruption. But whether want of courage or mistaken kindness was the cause of my error, I think you blame me too severely. I told Lady Lowborough two weeks ago, the very hour she came, that I should certainly think it my duty to inform you if she continued to deceive you. She gave me full liberty to do so. If I should see anything reprehensible or suspicious in her conduct, I have seen nothing, and I trusted she had altered her course. He continued gazing from the window while I spoke, and I did not answer. But stung by the recollections my words awakened, stamped his foot upon the floor, ground his teeth and corrugated his brow, like one under the influence of acute physical pain. It was wrong, it was wrong, he muttered at length. Nothing can excuse it, nothing can atone for it, but nothing can recall those years of cursed credulity, nothing obliterate them, nothing, nothing, he repeated in a whisper, whose despairing bitterness precluded all resentment. When I put the case to myself, I own it was wrong, I answered, but I can only now regret that I did not see it in this light before, and that, as you say, nothing can recall the past. Something in my voice or in the spirit of this answer seemed to alter his mood. 
Turning towards me and attentively surveying my face by the dim light, he said in a milder tone than he had yet employed, "'You too have suffered, I suppose.' "'I suffered much at first. "'When was that?' Two years ago. Two years hence you'll be as calm as I am now, "'and far, far happier, I trust, "'for you are a man and free to act as you please.' "'Something like a smile, but a very bitter one, "'crossed his face for a moment.' "'You have not been happy lately,' he said with a kind of effort to regain composure and a determination to waive the further discussion of his own calamity. "'Happy?' I repeated, almost provoked at such a question. "'Could I be so with such a husband? "'I have noticed a change in your appearance since the first years of your marriage,' pursued he. "'I observed it to, to that infernal demon,' he muttered between his teeth." And he said it was your own sour temper that was eating away your bloom. It was making you old and ugly before your time. And had already made his fireside as comfortless as a convent cell. You smile, Mrs. Huntington. Nothing moves you. I wish my nature was as calm as yours. My nature was not originally calm, said I. I have learned to appear so by dint of hard lessons and many repeated efforts. At this juncture, Mr. Hattersley burst in the room. "'Hello, Lobra,' he began. "'Oh, I beg your pardon,' he exclaimed on seeing me. "'I did not know it was a -a tete-a-tete. "'Cheer up, man,' he continued, giving Lord Lobra a thump on the back, "'which caused the latter to recoil from him with a look of ineffable disgust and irritation. "'Come, I want to speak with you a bit.' "'Speak, then. "'But I'm not sure it would be quite agreeable to the lady, what I have to say.' "'Then it would not be agreeable to me,' said his lordship, turning to leave the room.' "'Yes, it would,' cried the other, following him into the hall. "'If you've the heart of a man, it will be the very ticket for you. "'It's just this, my lad,' he continued, rather lowering his voice, "'but not enough to prevent me from hearing every word he said, "'though the half-closed door stood between us. "'I think you're an ill-used man. "'Nay, now, don't flare up. I don't want to offend you. "'It's only my rough way of talking. "'I must speak right out, you know, or else not at all.' "'And I'm come. Stop now, let me explain. "'I'm come to offer you my services. "'For though Huntington's my friend, "'he's a devilish scamp, as we know, "'and I'll be your friend for the nonce. "'I know what it is you want to make matters straight. "'It's just to exchange a shot with him, "'and then you'll feel yourself all right again. "'And if an accident happens, "'why, that'll be all right too, I dare say, "'to a desperate fellow like you. "'Come now, give me your hand and don't look so black upon it. "'Name, time and place, and I'll manage the rest.' That, answered the more low, deliberate voice of Lord Lowborough, is just the remedy my own heart, or the devil within it, suggested, to meet him, and not to sever without blood. Whether I or he should fall, or both, it would be an inexpressible relief to me, if... Just so, well then! No, exclaimed his lordship with deep determined emphasis, though I hate him from my heart, and should rejoice at any calamity that could befall him, I'll leave him to God. And though I abhor my own life, I'll leave that too to him that gave it. But you see, in this case, pleaded Hattersley, I'll not hear you, exclaimed his companion, hastily turning away. Not another word, I've enough to do against this fiend within me. Then you're a white-livered fool, I wash my hands of you, grumbled the tempter as he swung himself round and departed. Right, right, Lord Lobra, cried I, darting out and clasping his burning hand. As he was moving away to the stairs, I begin to think the world is not worthy of you. 
Not understanding this sudden ebullition, he turned upon me with a stare of gloomy, bewildered amazement that made me ashamed of the impulse to which I'd yielded. But soon a more humanised expression dawned upon his countenance, and before I could withdraw my hand, he pressed it kindly, while a gleam of genuine feeling flashed from his eyes as he murmured, God help us both. Amen, responded I as we parted. I returned to the drawing-room, where doubtless my presence would be expected by most, desired by one or two. In the anteroom was Mr Hattersley railing against Lord Lowborough's poltroonery before a select audience, viz Mr Huntingdon, who was lounging against the table, exulting his own treacherous villainy, and laughing his victim to scorn, and Mr Grimsby standing by, quietly rubbing his hands and chuckling with fiendish satisfaction. At the glance I gave them in passing, Hattersley stopped short in his animaversions and stared like a bull-calf. Grimsby glowered upon me with a leer of malignant ferocity, and my husband muttered a coarse and brutal malediction. In the drawing-room I found Lady Lowborough, evidently in no very enviable state of mind, and struggling hard to conceal her discomposure by an overstrained affectation of unusual cheerfulness and vivacity, very uncalled for under the circumstances, for she had herself given the company to understand that her husband had received an unpleasant intelligence from home, which necessitated his immediate departure, and that he had suffered it so as to bother his mind that it had brought on a bilious headache, owing to which, and the preparations, he judged necessary to hasten his departure. She believed they would not have the pleasure of seeing him tonight. However, she asserted it was only a business concern, and so she did not intend it should trouble her. She was just saying this as I entered, and she darted upon me such a glance of hardihood and defiance as at once astonished and revolted me. But I am troubled, continued she, and vexed too, for I think it my duty to accompany his lordship, and of course I'm very sorry to part with all my kind friends so unexpectedly and so soon. And yet, Annabella, said Esther, who was sitting beside her, I never saw you in better spirits in my life. "'Precisely so, my love, because I wish to make the best of your society, "'since it appears thus it is to be the last night I am to enjoy it, "'till heaven knows when, and I wish to leave a good impression on you all.' "'She glanced round, and seeing her aunt's eye fixed upon her rather too scrutinisingly, "'as she probably thought, she started up and continued, "'To which end I'll give you a song. Shall I, aunt? Shall I, Mrs Huntington? Shall I, ladies and gentlemen, all?' Very well, I'll do my best to amuse you. She and Lord Lowborough occupied the apartments next to mine. I know not how she passed the night, but I lay awake the greater part of it, listening to his heavy step pacing monotonously up and down his dressing room, which was nearest my chamber. Once I heard him pause and throw something out of the window with a passionate ejaculation, and in the morning after they were gone, a keen-bladed clasp-knife was found on the grass-plot below. A razor likewise was snapped in two and thrust deep into the cinders of the grate, but partly corroded by the decaying embers. So strong had been the temptation to end this miserable life, so determined his resolution to resist it. My heart bled for him as I lay listening to that ceaseless tread. Hitherto I thought too much of myself, too little of him. Now I forgot my own afflictions and thought only of his of the ardent affection so miserably wasted, the fond faith so cruelly betrayed, the, no, I will not attempt to enumerate his wrongs, 
But I hated his wife and my husband more intensely than ever, and not for my sake, but for his. That man, I thought, is an object of scorn to his friends, and the nice judging world, the false wife and the treacherous friend who have wronged him, are not so despised and degraded as he, and his refusal to avenge his wrongs and remove him yet further beyond the range of sympathy, and blacken his name with deeper disgrace. He knows this, and it doubles his burden of woe. He sees the injustice of it, but he cannot bear up against it. He lacks the sustaining power of self-esteem, which leads a man exulting in his own integrity to defy the malice of traducing foes and give them scorn for scorn, or better still, which raises him above the earth's foul and turbulent vapours to repose in heaven's eternal sunshine. He knows that God is just, but cannot see his justice now. He knows this life is short, and yet death seems insufferably far away. He believes that there's a future state, but so absorbing is the agony of this that he cannot realise its rapturous repose. He can but bow his head to the storm and cling blindly, despairingly to what he knows to be right, like the shipwrecked mariner cleaving to a raft, blinded, deafened, bewildered, he feels the waves sweep over him and sees no prospect of escape, and yet he knows he has no hope but this, and still, while life and sense remain, concentrates all his energies to keep it. Oh, that I had a friend's right to comfort him and tell him that I never esteemed him so highly as I do this night. They departed early in the morning before anyone else was down except myself and just as I was leaving my room, Lord Lowborough was descending to take his place in the carriage where his lady was already ensconced and Arthur, or Mr Huntington as I prefer calling him for the other is my child's name, had the gratuitous insolence to come out in his dressing-gown to bid his friend good-bye. "'What, going already, Lobra?' said he. "'Well, good morning.' He smilingly offered his hand. I think the other would have knocked him down had he not instinctively started back before that bony fist quivering with rage and clenched it till the knuckles gleamed white and glistening through the skin. Looking upon him with a countenance livid with furious hate, Lord Lobra muttered between his closed teeth, a deadly execration he would not have uttered had he been calm enough to choose his words, and departed. "'I call that an unchristian spirit now,' said the villain. "'But I'd never give up an old friend for the sake of a wife. "'You may have mine if you like, and I call that handsome. "'I can do no more than offer restitution, can I?' But Lobra had gained the bottom of the stairs and was now crossing the hall, and Mr Huntington, leaning over the banisters, called out, "'Give my love to Annabella, and I wish you both a happy journey!' and withdrew, laughing into his chamber. He subsequently expressed himself rather glad she was gone. "'She was so deuce imperious and exacting,' said he. "'Now I shall be my own man again and feel rather more at ease.' I know nothing more of Lord Lobra's subsequent proceedings, but what I have heard from Millicent, who, though she is ignorant of the case of his separation from her cousin, has informed me that such is the case, and that they keep entirely separate establishments, that she leads a gay, dashing life in town and country, while he lives in strict seclusion at his old castle in the north. There are two children, both whom he keeps under his own protection. The son and heir is a promising child, nearly the age of my Arthur, no doubt a source of some hope and comfort to his father. But the other, a little girl between one and two, with blue eyes and light auburn hair, he probably keeps from conscientious motives alone, 
thinking it wrong to abandon her to the teaching and example of such a woman as her mother. That mother never loved children, and has so little natural affection for her own, that I question whether she will not regard it as a relief to be thus entirely separated from them, and delivered from the trouble and responsibility of their charge. Not many days after the departure of Lord and Lady Lowborough, the rest of the ladies withdrew the light of their presence from Grassdale. Perhaps they might have stayed longer, but neither host nor hostess pressed them to prolong their visit. In fact, the former showed too plainly that he should be glad to be rid of them, and Mrs Hargrave retired with her daughters and her grandchildren, there are three of them now, to the grove. But the gentlemen remained. Mr Huntington, as I intimated before, was determined to keep them as long as he could, and being thus delivered from restraint, they gave loose to all their innate madness, folly and brutality, and made the house, night after night, one scene of riot and uproar and confusion. Who among them behaved the worst, or who the best, I cannot distinctly say, for from the moment I discovered how things would be, I formed the resolution of retreating upstairs, or locking myself into the library the instant I withdrew from the dining-room, and not coming near them again until breakfast. But this I must say for Mr Hargrave, that from all I could see of him, he was the model of decency, sobriety and gentlemanly manners in comparison with the rest. He did not join the party till a week or ten days after the arrival of the other guests, who were still on the continent when they came, and I cherished the hope that he would not accept the invitation. Accept it he did, however, but his conduct towards me for the first few weeks was exactly what I should have wished it to be, perfectly civil and respectful without any affectation of despondency or dejection, and sufficiently distanced without haughtiness or any such remarkable stiffness or iciness of demeanour as might be calculated to disturb or puzzle his sister or call forth the investigation of his mother. It made me kind of happy that Helen is referring to her husband now as Mr. Huntington because she doesn't want to besmirch the name of her darling little boy. I also wanted to make sure it wasn't missed because it went by so quickly that when Helen and Lord Loughborough finally had a chance to speak to each other and he calmed down enough to be able to speak to Helen, one of the things she said was, paraphrasing, you're lucky you're a guy because at least you have control over your own body. It wasn't just the body, though, that she was talking about. Up until the Marriage and Divorce Act in 1857, which made it a little bit easier for other men to get a divorce, Lord Loughborough would have been the only one out of this whole group who could have gotten a divorce. It required an act of parliament for a man to divorce his wife. It was very rare, even after the 1857 law. It was very rare for a woman to be able to get a divorce from her husband. And this, this actually was even driven home in the first Rivers of London book, where there is a ghostly judge who, it's a long story, but he's from roughly the same time period, this kind of Dickensian time period, when the Marriage and Divorce Act was written. And Ben Aronovich has him making some comment to the effect of, well, you know, men don't beat their wives for no reason. It's extraordinary what a woman can drive a man to do to her. And I thought, ooh, Ben Aronovich, he's read some Victorian literature, I'll bet. Ha ha. And here we are with 
pre-Victorian literature or very early Victorian literature, and the point is well made, if made briefly, that Lord Loughborough has that one very, very small advantage to the rest of the people in the story in that he could conceivably divorce Arabella. He doesn't, however, in this chapter, by the time we get to the end of the chapter, we find that they have separated. But there is another thing that Anne Bronte brings out via Helen that I thought was interesting. Helen has already been upset on her own behalf. Now she is letting her overdeveloped sense of injustice get upset on behalf of Lord Loughborough. And one of the things that she is churned up about is the way that society, and in our specific case, the people who are watching, the way men ridicule, look down upon, disparage men who have been cuckolded, whose wives have had affairs with other men, instead of getting down on the guy who did the perpetrating in the first place. It's kind of interesting because there's a corollary to that kind of behavior in female circles as well. Some girl, quote unquote, steals your boyfriend or steals your husband. You don't get mad at the guy who you purportedly still love. You get mad at the female. It's like we have a really hard time, we human people, of putting the blame soundly where it belongs. And Anne Bronte makes that point on behalf of Lord Loughborough briefly in this chapter, but it's still there. And I thought that was kind of cool that Helen wasn't just upset about the way women were treated, but also the way men are treated in a world like this. It goes back to Martin Luther King's any injustice in the world is injustice for everybody. We all suffer something when others are suffering. And the last thing that went by super fast, but subtextually it's so important. Helen has had these people under her roof every year since she got married for extensive periods of time. And today, in the chapter towards the end of, the, or in the paragraph towards the end of this chapter, we learn that Lord Loughborough and Arabella have separated, and she's off living her life and being her own free self and having a lovely time. Arthur Huntingdon, Mr. Huntingdon, by the time she and Loughborough have left in this chapter, Huntingdon seems to be quite fine to let her go which is, you know, charming behavior on his part now that Loughborough knows what's going on. But either way, Arabella's off on her own, having a ball. Loughborough's kept the kids. Legally, we know that that is completely plausible, and not just plausible, but very probable. He's the one with the money. He's the one with the title. She seems not to care because she's off having a good time. His son, who is around Arthur's age, so five-ish, looks like him and is a charmer. The daughter looks a bit more like Arthur Huntingdon. And yet, Loughborough keeps this girl, this child, one somewhere around one, one to two years old, so that's the dead giveaway on that one, keeps her close to him amazingly and is just apparently happy to keep her away from the influence of her mother. It's kind of impressive. And admittedly, if he had done anything, you know, obvious that society could see and pick up on, 
He could have made it worse for himself anyway, but still, he seems to be a pretty good guy, that old lord. And Helen seems a little bit better at the end of the chapter. Maybe, I don't think it's a, a schadenfreude moment where she is deriving pleasure from somebody else's misfortune, but maybe just feeling a little bit more stable in not being completely alone in pain. We also have Walter coming back from the continent and apparently behaving himself. So another reason to not feel quite so lousy right now. So Helen ends the chapter on a little tiny, 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 tiny bit of an upswing. Good place to end for us today. All right, take care of yourself, wear a mask, take care of each other. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. If you like what you heard today, please leave a review over at iTunes. Join us on Facebook. Meet up with the knitters on Craftlet's Corner of Ravelry. Stay in the know on Instagram or add your name to our mailing list, which I promise will never spam you. In fact, you probably want to buy a lottery ticket on any day that you get a message from the Craftlet mailing list because that'll be a special day. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on. <laughs>